When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, the special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan open the series with a look at the techno scene in Detroit, the house scene in Chicago, and the garage scene in New York and New Jersey, and how African Americans in those three cities invented and perfected electronic dance music as we know it today. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let it roll, or should I say, techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're back again with Ryan Harkness, continuing our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And today we're going to be talking about three American cities Detroit, Chicago, and New York, and their impact on the electronic dance music scene. Ryan, big picture thoughts. Yeah, it's cool how they kind of combine all three cities into one chapter uh, coming. You know, I promised myself I would try not to litter this podcast with too many comparisons between, you know, Techno Roll season one and last night a DJ saved my life versus season two's energy flash. And, you know, like just throwing it back and forth as to how each one did did each. But it's too interesting for me not to note how last night a DJ saved my life kind of rolls chapter to chapter from New York disco to Chicago house to Detroit techno. Uh, while energy flash goes the exact opposite direction, starting with Detroit techno and then Chicago house, and then back to New York for the post disco garage movement. So it's, it, it's very interesting to me how the history is kind of not, you know, not reversed. Cause I don't know if he was trying to do anything, uh, on a, on a timeline, but it, it was done differently and presented differently. And it was started off with something that I think last night, a DJ saved my life kind of underplayed, which was the influence of, uh, Europe and craft work and, uh, Giorgio Moroder, Italo disco and everything like that. But, especially craft work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, those those are very good points. And I think Reynolds, despite being hip to the importance of the DJ, he still is kind of producer focused and record focused. And I think that's the reason he started in that order, because Detroit with Juan Atkins and uh, Cybertron got um, got on vinyl first. So, you know, it, it makes sense. And I like I like it. 
it's it's compressing. The meat of his book is about England in the 90s, and I think it's appropriate that he has more of that Euro focus. I think the language barrier for Brewster and Broughton is probably a factor in maybe undercovering some of the European scenes. I mean, they cover quite a bit of them, but but yeah, I, I definitely yeah, like. It's definitely something that they updated in the in in the next uh, version of the book when they actually uh, went to Italy for the Cosmic Disco chapter, which was I think a new one in the in the revised edition. Yeah, absolutely. But but like you say, Reynolds starts with craft work, and I think that's very, very important. I mean, these guys, absolute pioneers of electronic music. And he, Reynolds also makes a funny connection because craft work came out of the kraut rock scene, was originally a rock band with guitars, bass, and drums, and they were heavily, heavily influenced by bands from Detroit, like the MC5 and the Stooges, and that whole punk ethos of you know rage and power and deliberately moronic, frankly, um, trance states, you know, seeking to make simple, simple music that triggers elevated states in your mind. And they were also big influenced by the Velvet Underground and their abandonment of R&B rhythms. And that's kind of the enigma of Kraftwerk. I mean, they've got quotes from the legendary Detroit DJ Carl Craig saying, that Kraftwerk were so stiff they were funky. And Reynolds is, is interviewing him, trying to get him to explain why was young black America so fascinated and so in love with the widest band on earth, Kraftwerk. And, you know, so stiff they were funky. And and Reynolds translates that into so white they were black, which is which is classic. And and you know, Kraftwerk also is a direct antecedent. I mean, you don't get more direct than being sampled, two of your songs sampled in Planet Rock by Africa Bambata. And so that whole early 80s electro thing, which is another area that I think Brewster and Broughton maybe kind of underemphasize. I think people like Jelly Bean Benitas and other other DJs and producers in New York doing the electro funk stuff um, kind of got short shrift in that. Again, yeah, there, there's a whole lot of uh, you, you go back and you listen to Kraftwerk and you hear some of the tracks and there's a real electro. Uh, you can hear where electro came from when you listen to some of the Kraftwerk. I find uh, Kraftwerk has elements of uh, you can you can hear where where techno and electro both kind of came from. They have they have components from different tracks that kind of feed into both and move forward with both. Yeah, absolutely. And also got to mention, you know, uh, George Clinton's P-Funk um, flashlight in particular was a big influence on both electro and techno. And and Derek May, you know, one of the Belleville three architects of techno, he said that techno is, quote, like George Clinton and Kraftwerk stuck in an elevator with nothing but a sequencer to keep them occupied. So, you know, he, Reynolds pretty quickly zeroes in on what he calls the techno rebels of Detroit. And these guys... Juan Atkins, Derek May, and Kevin Sanderson, with an assist from Eddie Folks, who was in in there with them and then kicked out and exiled for decades. But there kind of could be a Belleville four, although Eddie wasn't from Belleville; he was from the other side of Detroit. But the wrong side of the tracks, exactly. And that's a big factor in this story: is that these kids from Belleville were pretty affluent. They were second generation African Americans who's ancestors had worked, migrated north and worked in the car factories, which was this big equalizer. Despite all the race riots they had in Detroit, both in the 40s and the 60s, it brought a big infusion of wealth to the African-American community. And it created these middle class communities that by the 80s 
are creating middle class art projects like techno. And and so you've got people like Juan Atkins who who partners with this eccentric Vietnam vet Rick Davis, who's got this whole Afrofuturist philosophy based on Alvin Toffler and other things, and also observing what's happening in Detroit, because Detroit was totally hollowed out by real estate policies and white flight. And by the 70s and 80s, you had a a de facto apartheid state where the city itself was very black and very poor. The suburbs are very white and very affluent. And these are three kids who managed to get on the wealthier side of that line. They moved out to the suburbs where they had to deal with being isolated and being some of the only black kids out there. And that's what kind of forced them together. They're three very different kids. Um, And Juan Atkins was just kind of the Pied Piper who uh, was way ahead of everybody, making records really early on and thinking about this stuff in a a really self-conscious intellectual way that makes me think of of people like the Rolling Stones, like Brian Jones and Mick Jagger, who are these middle-class kids who are obsessed with the blues. These are these middle-class kids who are obsessed with disco, but they're not going to discos. They're in their bedroom talking about the theory of it, which is, you know, it's just classic. And and yet they they were able, after a slow start, they started DJing parties. And at first, you know, there's a great story in there about how they went out there and they don't have any clue what they're doing. And, you know, they're playing 45s with no slip mats. They don't know how to blend or anything. And nobody is dancing. And then DJ Ken Collier, who is a local radio DJ, gets on there and just immediately packs the floor. And, you know, they they talk about the Detroit scene just being a, a really, really persnickety scene that had no mercy, no room for error. If you were not bringing it, they were not going to dance. Um yeah, the and, book kind of describes it not so much as the Detroit techno scene, but as more of a high school social club scene that kind of played a mix of electrofunk, garage, uh, Euro synth pop, American new wave. And if you want to get a feel for like what that all sounded like together, because it definitely doesn't sound like it would all mix together, but go look up uh, the Electrifying Mojo on YouTube. He was a uh, Detroit radio DJ. And if you want to, if you're wondering kind of how someone like Juan Atkins, ended up getting into craft work and getting into a whole bunch of different stuff. There's no underselling. Uh, there's no way you can, you can, you can play down or there's no way I can build up and rather how much of a, uh, an influence the electrifying mojo had. Uh, he was a, a massive Detroit radio DJ, a, a huge market share at the time. And he would throw together craft work and new wave and, and he, when Cybotron first came out, uh, Electrifying Mojo was the guy that was was playing it, making it a hit. So uh, you know, this this is the guy that not only fed this kind of music and and piqued these kids' imaginations, but he was also picking up the music that they were writing, and and putting it out there. But you know, it is important to note it's not like uh, Detroit techno took off in Detroit and there was a magical Detroit techno scene in the in the early '80s. It all became part of kind of a a big mix of everything, and and that again is reflected back in what the electrifying mojo was playing on the radio. Absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of craft work. This is the robots from 1978. Uh, anything you want to say about this one before we drop it? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, Kraftwerk sounds had like an upward utopian futurist vibe to it. Like, oh, we are robots traveling across unified lands. Isn't it great? 
And uh, it's kind of a funny uh, contrast to Detroit techno, You're like Cybotron, which was the mix kind of taking craft work and making it more Detroit, which is more of a like, we're being crushed in the gears. How do I escape this? It's like a cultural reflection where craft work was feeling pretty good about the direction the future was bringing while Cybotron realizes, you know, this machine will eat us. Absolutely. And this is Craftwork, the robots. Craftwork, the robots. That was a track, uh, one of many Craftwork tracks that the Belleville Three were studying closely as they sat in their bedroom and analyzed and intellectualized the tracks they were hearing. And yeah, you, you really put your finger on it. The, and Reynolds talks about this a lot. That there's this, especially you know, coming from Cybertron, Rick Davis inculcated these younger guys with a pretty insightful and brilliant philosophy that has not aged badly at all. It's this utopian, dystopian fantasy. That's uh, a thinly veiled allegory for the unofficial apartheid taking shape in urban America. And, and you know, uh, I think it was Juan Atkins who said, you know, for people who don't have anything, any change is good. There's two ways of looking at it. There's the, the dystopia and the utopia. And for a lot of people in urban Detroit who were absolutely at the bottom of society, you know, they're going to willing to roll the dice. And, and for these kids that were in the middle class sections in the suburbs they were a little bit insulated from that and yeah the, this party scene in detroit it's a bunch of kids who are wealthy who can travel eddie folks had a perspective on it because he was not from that set and he could see that these kids had access to books and movies and vacations and gq magazine they were obsessed with the movie american gigolo they're listening to uk new new romantics like visage and ultravox and dancing to the b-52s and the talking heads and also prince and parliament funkadelic are big parts of this as well as as the electro funk coming out of new york not just africa bambata but stuff like peach boys Larry Levin's band and Was Not Was and other groups. And um, this scene, if it wasn't for the Electrify and Mojo, Cybertron would not have broken out nationally because because of that radio platform, they're able to sell several thousand copies in Detroit. And then they get signed to Fantasy Records out of California and have multiple hits and have a, a very successful album. But Rick Davis wants to get a guitar player and go into a rock direction. And Juan Atkins is like, are you crazy? You know, we've got every black radio DJ in the country eating out of our hand and you want to turn rock on us? Like, uh, wrong move. And so he goes solo and starts making his own records. And very quickly, his acolytes like Derek May and Kevin Saunderson and Eddie Folks start making their own records initially on Juan's label. But pretty quickly they have to split it up and each one of them gets their own label and well and it's apparently it, it was like Juan Atkins being 
you know, as they called him the Pied Piper uh, or the and the originator. But I feel like he was also a really great collaborator. And you have to wonder if Cybertron had continued, would Atkins have been around to mentor and expand the Detroit techno scene? He was the guy that set up Metroplex Records, which was uh, the big techno label at the time, released a lot of, uh, you know, Derek May and Kevin Saunderson's first tracks and then helped you know, when when they wanted their own labels, he helped set up their own labels as well to avoid the headaches that he would have had uh, if, if he had to try and keep Derek May under his own label. He said it just would have been a pain in his ass. So it, it was no I don't know if you can say no ego, but maybe it's the kind of ego that you have where you you've already had your success and you just want to spread it around. I give a big props to Atkins for being what it sounds like is, is the glue to the, to the Detroit scene where he was willing to spread the wealth and he was willing to spread the spotlight and he was willing to glow, grow it with a bunch of all of his friends inside the Belleville three and outside yeah absolutely like for example kevin saunderson's uh hits with inner city big fun and good life uh i think it was big fun that was you know had a baseline by james pennington they brought in art forest to co-write the song paris gray to sing it and juan atkins mixed it so he's you know hands-on with his protégés all the way through this process and but Derek May is the one who discovers Chicago. Like Juan Atkins is a little bit homophobic and isn't into the house scene at first. But Derek May realizes really quickly on regular trips to Chicago that there's a scene here. There's radio play. Uh, the Hot Mix 5 on WBMX are, are playing, doing live mixing and playing tons of house music. You've got Frankie Knuckles um, at the warehouse and then the power station, I think. Um, and then... Uh, Ron Hardy at, takes over at the warehouse and then the music box. So you've got these clubs that are gay clubs, but they're beginning to draw uh, a mixed crowd of, of gay and straight kids. And Derek May realizes really quickly, if I can get my records in the hands of those DJs and they play them and they play them on the Hot Mix 5, I'm going to sell some units. And so Chicago, in a lot of ways, is the city that really built a scene. Detroit's scene with the high school dances falls apart fairly quickly because of this commitment to exclusivity on the part of these wealthier West Side kids who do not want the East Side kids coming over and they start putting no jits for no jitterbugs, which is pretty ugly slur for uh, kids from the poorer part of town. And as Derek May said, you know, it was one thing to put it on the poster. It's another thing to turn away some, you know, six foot, four inch, 250 pound kid from the ghetto when you're a five foot, two inch, 110 pound dude from the suburbs. And so, you know, the scene got ugly and kind of imploded, whereas Chicago had a lot more capacity, at least for a little while. I mean, it was a it was a legitimate club scene. I mean, the warehouse was uh, three floors, 2000 people uh, like on a on a hot Saturday night. It was uh, and there were a number of clubs that were, were going off where Detroit. I mean, we talked about how the downtown was hollowed out. And uh, I think that that big issue of once anything got too big, all of a sudden uh, the violence from from the projects and stuff like that started to come in uh you can you can wonder whether or not it was the intolerance of the of the suburbanite kids or, or whether or not it was just the straight up violence uh, that that a, 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 a ghetto like that creates but uh, either way it just wasn't uh, conducive to anything growing while while chicago had a very established le legitimate quote-unquote 
scene uh, built up across the the city, which is just, I mean, if you've never been to Chicago, Chicago just goes on and on. Uh, you try to drive from one side to the other. It's like two hours. It's massive. And uh, the, the whole city was was rigged for house. So the it, disco never died in Chicago. It kept on going. Uh, Frankie Knuckles came in with his sound and, and really set up. Uh, you know, the reason why they call it house music is because Frankie Knuckles used to play the warehouse and it just kind of got boiled down to that. And all of a sudden, all these clubs out there have signs up in the window saying we play house music. So it, it became like a, an, an established thing. You didn't have to be in with some kind of high, like, like clique or social club in order to get into it. And there wasn't as much of that. Uh, there, the bottom end of Chicago wasn't as rough as the bottom end of Detroit. Yeah, absolutely. And We've got to mention, of course, the Disco Demolition Night in 1979, which happened in Chicago at a Chicago White Sox and Detroit Tigers game. And this, you know, uh, rock DJ Steve Dahl has this basically triggers a riot and, and sort of a race riot. They're burning Marvin Gaye records and stuff, stuff that has nothing to do with disco. I guess Marvin maybe had one disco hit, but, you know, they're just burning records by black people and and rioting. And that triggered the disco backlash. We've talked about that a lot, but ironically, Chicago is one of the towns where disco refused to die. Um, and Reynolds has some some deep thoughts. So I want to quote here that Chicago house music was born of a double exclusion, not just black, but gay and black. Its refusal, its cultural dissidence took the form of embracing a music that the major, majority culture deemed dead and buried. House didn't just resurrect disco, it mutated the form, intensifying the very aspects of the music that most offended white rockers and black funketeers. The mechanical repetition, the synthetic and electronic textures, the rootlessness, the depraved hypersexuality, and the decadent druggy hedonism. And let's go ahead and drop our next song. Um, I want to go with "Mix Your Own Stars," track one. This you want to want to tell us about it and why you picked it, Ryan? Yeah, the, the, the this is coming up in in the show. We're going to talk about this a lot more. Is uh, songs versus tracks, and this is something that a lot of the producers uh, in Detroit and Chicago started talking about. Is they weren't producing songs; they were producing tracks, and often tracks could just be you you'd hear a song that you liked, and you heard one one segment from it, maybe even just a thirty two beat part of it, and you'd either lift it or recreate it on a drum machine, and then you'd extend it out to like five or six minutes. And track one by Mix Your Own Stars is basically was originally just created as a, a DJ tool to, to help DJs mix from one track to the other. But DJs started playing and you're going to hear it. It's super repetitive. They just started playing this thing straight and people would go nuts. And so mix your own stars, track one. was Mix Your Own Stars, track one from 1981. And this is an example of kind of what Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy were up against. Because of the disco implosion, American record companies basically stopped making new disco records in the early 80s. There was still new stuff coming from Italy. Uh, there was some of the electro-funk scene uh, coming along 82, 83, out of New York, uh, Bambata and Larry Levin and others. And 
but they're also recycling a lot of hits and using every tool in their DJ arsenal. They're, they're mixing the tracks, they're blending, they're stretching the things out and using sound effects. Frankie Knuckles patented train uh, going around the, the master speakers in the warehouse. And so house is a funny style because the genre is actually codified and named before the records really start getting made. It's, it's, it's totally a DJ driven style. And this thing, I want to also quote uh, Chuck D of public enemy to give you a feel for kind of the funk and hip hop opposition to house and disco. And here's Chuck D telling Simon Reynolds uh, why he didn't like house. He says it's, it's sophisticated, anti-black, anti-feel, the most artificial shit I ever heard. It represents the gay scene. It's separating blacks from their past and their culture. It's upwardly mobile. And so this is what Reynolds is talking about, this double exclusion. And we'll talk about this how, tension between house and hip hop. We're going to see it in Chicago. We're going to see it in New York. We're going to see it in the UK where hip hip hop fans are very resistant to house. And there's a little bit of resistance when people try to blend, uh, people like Todd Terry try to blend the the genres and create a hip house. So, and it's not just, you know, Chuck D saying it, one at kids actually kind of gives credence to this because he, he, he agrees with Chuck D in a way in that, uh, you know, uh, his Detroit posse gravitated towards Euro and, and, and techno and stuff like that as a rejection of lower class project and ghetto culture and stuff like that. So there is a, a certain, if, if you're talking about a culture clash, it isn't just white versus black, but then there's the middle class black versus lower class. And I think Chuck D is probably saying, you know, this, this music feels like a rejection of the streets and a rejection of, of maybe where, where these, where we're coming from. And Juan Atkins saying, we, we got into this because we want to differentiate ourselves. So there, there's an interesting uh, element of that, that I'd never considered or, or thought about before, because obviously I'm uh, kind of two dimensional. I see things from a white perspective towards a black perspective, uh, not not recognizing beforehand that obviously there are many black voices with many different different views on things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've learned this throughout Let It Roll. Stuff is fractal and there are tribes within tribes and and rivalries within groups that from the outside seem to be a single group. Turns out it's multiple groups. And so um, House eventually, though, especially with the influence of techno, Derek May starts bringing down his records. He starts bringing down his drum machine. And so, you know, Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy start mixing records while using a live drum machine. So the sound's getting even more electronic and futuristic and it's happening on the the club floors. But then uh, Jesse Saunders and others start making records in Chicago. And, you know, the first one uh, we talked about before, On and On, which is a cover of of a salsa classic by First Choice, um, and is amazingly lo-fi. Like Jesse Saunders' production this is truly a bedroom production and you can hear it, but nonetheless, it got played on the radio and it sold. And so, you know, I, I, somebody I saw in one of the documentaries about this stuff, you know, talks about like you'd hear one of his records and then you'd hear Prince and then just the sonic contrast between this absolutely lo-fi cheap ass bedroom production. And then the kind of stuff, you know, that was coming out of Minnesota at the same time was absolutely staggering. But then as Jesse Saunders improved, um, you know, he, he, he improved his sound quality quite a bit, but still never got anywhere near the kind of Prince um, quality. And, and yeah, you talk about the tracks and Reynolds really 
it makes a distinction that's useful to me because it's something I didn't get. But there's really two strains of music that come out of Chicago in this period. There's the track stuff, which is very robotic, very electronic, very synthetic. And then there's songs and people like Fingers Inc. Um, from the very beginning are putting out records with songs and singing. And it, it gets called Deep House. And the garage scene in New York City picks up on that very much. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the, this this bifurcation within house is is important. And and things like the acid tracks and acid house are going to come out of the track side of it. And things like garage and speed garage, et cetera, et cetera, are all going to come out of this more deep house. But it, it's interesting that these um two strains that are really contradictory and very oppositional came out of the same scene at the same time and the same DJs were playing both of them. Well, and I then, think uh, in, a, in a lot of situations you had nights where DJs would start out playing songs and then as the night went on and people got more inebriated or, or a little bit more more into it, then, then it would start going more and more into track territory because you could kind of bring people into that hypnotic dance area and you could play, you know, a loop for six minutes and people would go nuts for it. So, you know, these DJs asked they were going on for longer and longer. They would go transition from songs into tracks. And I think that one of the elements that that made, you know, tracks so interesting, I think uh, Simon Reynolds kind of says that uh, jacking house, which is, which is kind of uh, the terminology used for a lot of the early house that was being made, uh, that was, that was very kind of, more robotic and stilted and stuff like that. You could only take so much of it for so long and it, and it got kind of uh, aggravating after a while. But then the, the interesting thing that kind of happened was the tracks, the tracks kind of carried everything through and morphed into the next thing. And it kind of goes into his hypothesis that the real magic comes out of those manic 4am drug and dance sessions, because DJs were seeing what snippets of the songs worked for the people on the dance floor. And then they would take that snippet and then they would loop it and they would very uh, play variations on it. You know, no different than classical guys would play variations on, uh, on, on, popular tunes back in, uh, you know, back in the 17th and 18th century and stuff like that, I think. But, uh, you know, this is this is where the the real experimentation would happen on top of these grooves that were tried, tested and true. So this this was, you know, dance floor to the producer, back to the dance floor, back to the producer. And it's iron sharpening iron. Absolutely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors when we come back. I want to shout out some of the white avant funk bands that Reynolds credits as being influences on house. And Reynolds goes out of his way to point out that um, House is a flashback, quote, a flashback to the white avant funk and experimental dance music of the early 80s when post-punks turned to black dance styles for for inspiration. And that, um, you know, later on, a ton of people who had been involved in the avant funk scene in England and Europe are going to get on board with the House uh, trend in, in England in the late 80s and early 90s. People like Cabaret Voltaire's Richard Kirk is going to emerge, reemerge as Sweet Exorcist, 400 Blows. Tony Tharp is going to be the Moody Boys, Biting Tongues. Graham Massey is going to be 808 State. But he singles out DAF from Dusseldorf as, quote, perhaps the most prophetic of the early 80s avant funk outfits, and that their aesthetic was super influential on house he quotes freedom achieved by abandoning subjectivity and self-will the ecstasy of being enthralled by the beat and he talks about jacking and and, and how it's this 
quote, a whole body frenzy of polymorphously perverse tics and convulsive pogoing that replaced the pelvic thrust and booty shake of disco with this manic, frenzied, kind of post-sexual state, ecstatic state. And he talks about how even though House, a lot of House music has singers and, and is modeled on this disco diva style that's very consistent with the high energy scene that's going on at the same time, but he notes that house singers tend to be ciphers. The, the vocals are, quote, merely plastic material to be manipulated by the producer. And then he says that house is the culmination of a tradition of black dance music that's been created by producers, session musicians, and engineers. You know, and we're talking about things like Motown with the Funk Brothers and Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson and people like that behind the scenes. Um, you know, Stax Records, the same thing. The guys in Muscle Shoals, the same thing. Atlantic Records, the same thing. But House took it even further and eliminated the musicians. So you don't have the Funk Brothers anymore. You don't have Booker T and the MGs. Um, but you you just have people like Jesse Saunders in a room with a sequencer and a drum machine and maybe some keyboards busting out tracks. And, you know, then you bring in a, a diva to drop in some vocals and then you chop that up and manipulate it. Um, yeah. Reynolds lays out how house music took the lyrics, which were so key and important to disco and garage DJs and completely just took out the humanity, clipped them down, sliced them into notes and samples and like taking all of the original message out. And to me, it's, it's, it's a more important point to make when you when you understand more about how just aghast the first generation DJs and producers producers of, of disco and, and garage were like Tony Humphreys, who's one of the key garage guys after Larry Levin. He famously said he would never play any of these house tracks or remixes because he knew the original artists and vocalists that were being sampled and desecrated. And it was just too much disrespect for him to even handle. So, you know, in contrast to to where back in the post disco, well, disco, post disco garage, where uh, you know, a lot of these DJs were saying, if if the lyrics don't say something important, don't bother playing it to all of a sudden you've got like one word being syncopated and, and chopped and reversed and echoed. And it's uh, it's it's a hilarious contrast that uh, that I think, you know, the more the more you understand where it came from to where it became, uh, the more you can kind of understand how wild it was that this was going on. Yeah, it's this tension between fathers and sons and you know disco is definitely the musical father of house it makes you think of of chronos you know shuddering as uh, zeus comes for him or uranus you know cringing as chronos comes to cut off his uh, his reproductive parts with the side so you know people people like um tony humphreys knew what was coming and they knew it was different and reynolds talks about this dichotomy that there's this divide between finding yourself and losing yourself that house offers the sense of community and communion to those who might have been alienated from organized religion because of their sexuality and he quotes frankie knuckles saying that the warehouse was a church for those who have fallen for grace and that you know people like jamie principles uh tracks like baby wants to ride fuse religious and sexual rapture and and um it's you know and, and fingers inc does distant planet which is cosmic mysticism a la sun Ra, which you know ties in with the detroit techno you know afrofuturism strain and, and so there's these currents you know it, it makes me think of a bathtub that's got the water flowing and it's just being stirred around and there's soap bubbles rising up all over the place and people are going in all kinds of different directions. And one of the different directions they go in is acid house, which in some senses you can be very reductive about it and say that, look, 
house is music, you know, with a four four beat and maybe vocals, maybe not vocals. But if you add a Roland TB303 doing bass squelchy sounds, you've got acid house. And that's not it's not quite that tidy, but the Roland TB303 definitely is a factor. And it's just a classic case of machinery being repurposed. He talks about how the Detroit guys are, quote, techno rebels coming out of Alvin Toffler's Future Shock with this vision of using the technology of the corporate plutocracy against itself. And the kids in the Chicago were the same thing. The Roland TB303 was this toy that didn't work. It was supposed to be a robot bass player and the ideal customer for it was a guitar player who had a drum machine he liked to play with and he wanted to play with a robot bass player too and it was terrible for that nobody wanted to do that it it wasn't good at it It wasn't funky it didn't support your playing um although you know the italo disco guys he cites alexander robotnik's song le problems de more uh from 1983 which was a big hit in chicago and used the 303 early on but a couple years later dj pierre and marshall jefferson get a hold of it and make futures acid tracks just by as you know farley jack mr funk said it was an obsolete old-fashioned piece of technology that no one had ever thought of misusing that way before and they just took the thing and turned knobs and made noises and yeah, the ba- because the bass had the uh, they they created the ability in the device to simulate the bass slide sliding up between notes all of a sudden you had these guys programming two notes that are pretty far apart on the keyboard and sliding them and it creates this this ridiculous dysfunctional squelch again it's uh, uh, it's because the machine fails at its primary duty that these guys were able to take it and, uh, and and play with it so much. And it wasn't like this was super hidden because uh, I, you know, I, I realized I talk crap about the TB three hundred three. I think in the in the first episode of uh, of season one of Techno Roll, but uh, I actually went out and bought the new Behringer TB three hundred three clone because I've had a complete change of heart. It's something that I, I'm really having fun with right now. But there's a randomized button on it and you hit that randomized button and everything that comes out of it none of it makes any sense it all squelches it's uh, i think reynolds uh, said it was a cross between uh between a fart and a didgeridoo <laughs> which is um pretty classic and it turns out that it's something that you know you can do a lot with and let's hear one of these early acid tracks i want to i want to play um, I think Donnie by the It, which uh, came out shortly in the aftermath of Future's Acid Tracks. This is the It with Donnie. <laughs> She left me for another man All the sounds upon her hand As she flew out to Japan And that was the It with Donnie, which was an early acid track, uh, acid house track coming out of Chicago. And yeah, there's some vibe to this stuff that's just very disorienting and very paranoid. And it got the name Acid House because people at Ron Hardy's clubs were dropping a lot of LSD. X hadn't really hit the scene in Chicago yet. Um, and people are, are doing acid and freaking out. And like the first time he played a futures track, nobody danced 
he kept playing it through the course of the night, and by 4 a.m., people are just going crazy. And and uh, it was originally known as as Ron Hardy's acid track, or frequently called that. And and this vibe had a lot of power and is one of the things that broke through in England. And and that's why the whole English scene was called Acid House. And it caused a lot of confusion with people uh, thinking, A, this is drug music and you have to be on drugs to listen to it or anybody dancing to it and listening to it is doing drugs. And it also confused a lot of people, a lot of people who didn't even know what ecstasy was into thinking that uh, they're doing LSD, which was, you know, a 60s thing, but also it was massively popular throughout the 80s. And the early scene was very much people doing X and people doing acid. And, um, you know, later on, as X became illegal and more difficult, a lot of times what people were buying thinking they were X was was LSD frequently mixed with methamphetamine. So, yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. With, <laughs> it's with funny people. how it's kind of a, a acid house is almost, a you know, you I'd say there's truth to it, uh, the fact that it has to do with acid, but it's almost a misunderstanding. But instead of a misunderstanding, people took it as an instruction manual, and I guess it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here we are. So, you know, uh, there's been a happy ending for some of us or a happy continuation and then but the thing with chicago was the scene had been going great with the the multiple big clubs you had wbmx with the hot mix five on the air big record sales locally you had tracks records which is just this crazy story this guy larry sherman who owns the only record placing plant in chicago and when jesse saunders comes to him with on and on he quickly susses out that this kid is selling a lot of units forms his own record label and it's the jankiest mobbed up shadiest ripoff uh allegedly label. Uh, allegedly <laughs> yes of all time um made a lot of great records though and and got a lot of records out and and out around the world and dj international was the other chicago label and they also got records out uh to europe and around the world and so even though the detroit scene had been the first on vinyl and the first to have American hits. It was the house scene that was the first to hit in England. In fact, the first compilation album of Detroit tracks was originally going to be called The House Sound of Detroit before they decided to rebrand it techno. And even and that then, was that, that was that was Juan Atkins who insisted that they call it techno. And and once again, uh, going back to uh, to his Cybotron partner. Uh, uh, as far as Rick Davis being a guy who was was really big into uh, into theory and really big into uh, into creating vocabulary for 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 everything that they were doing, no one gives Rick Davis or Juan Atkins pure credit for inventing the techno name. But I feel like Juan Atkins was the one that insisted it be called techno on the the international compilations, and his work with Rick Davis and the importance that they put towards the terminologies that they used. I feel like between the two of them, you got. To give them credit for that techno terminology. Absolutely, and it, and as much as techno and house were super intertwined initially, if, you know, if you listen to Frankie Knuckles sets from the '80s, you'll hear Detroit and and Chicago tracks back to back mixed in with uh, disco tracks and New York tracks, but. I think naming things has a lot of power. And so once they named techno as a separate genre, it became a separate genre. And people uh, later on, some people would you know, fly the techno flag. Other people would fly uh, the acid house flag. Other people would fly the deep house and the garage flag. And what happened in Chicago was there was this kind of double pincer movement. The authorities cracked down on the overnight clubs. WBMX went off the air in 1988. Record sales plummeted. You know, They were selling one-tenth as many as they had 
sold before. And the mafia moves in or underground, you know, criminals move in on, on the clubs as well. So the, the scene's just being attacked from all corners. And a lot of the creators start going to Europe uh, to make money. Franklin Knuckles goes back to New York. Uh, DJ Pierre goes to New Jersey and gets in on the garage scene. So there's kind of this passion of the torch from Chicago back to New York. And, you know, Frankie Knuckles had been Larry Levin's understudy at the Continental Baths in New York. He moved to Chicago in 77, slowly created house over the next decade. But Larry Levin stayed in New York and masterminded the Paradise Garage where you know, Reynolds calls him one of the first DJ as shaman, a quote, techno mystic who developed a science of sound to create spiritual experiences for his followers. He had this massive sound system that he had built together with Richard Long, who's the guy who had built all the great sound systems in New York and in England in this period. And, you know, LeVan was also a producer. He made Tanya Gardner's Heartbeat, Class Actions Weekend. He was the co-founder of the Peach Boys, which was one of the top electro-funk groups. Um, you know, there's a lot going on. There's record labels, West End and Prelude. And so New York is kind of the place where electro segues into garage and they they are playing some house. Larry Levin is playing some of the house. Tony Humphreys is resistant to some of the tracks, but he, you know, if you listen to old Tony Humphreys stuff, you will hear some Chicago house in there. Um, I guess he knew what met his standards and what didn't. And, and, you know, you also have guys like Arthur Baker, John Roby, Francis Kevorkian that we talked about a lot in the, in the first series of techno role, Jolie Bean Benitez, um, who goes on to produce Madonna and kind of takes this dance music electro style very much into the pop mainstream. And then he gives a big shout out to Arthur Russell, who is this, total character, one of the biggest, most unique animals in uh, 70s and 80s music. He's the bridge between electro-funk and garage. He was an avant-garde composer and cellist. And as you know, he went to the loft of the gallery and heard disco. And immediately to him, it was like, wow, this is just like what Philip Glass is doing. And, and you know, obsessed with these connections between minimalism and the power, the repetitious power of disco and starts making disco records like Go Bang Number no. 5 by Dinosaur L, Loose Joints Is It All Over My Face, and um, is a big factor in, in this blend going on. But I think kind of he 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 elevated everything. He kind of showed uh, going back to that that comparison between songs and tracks and tracks being kind of more rudimentary DJ tools. Yeah, Arthur Russell was a, a real odd duck who brought uh, a lot of uh, eclectic ideas to uh, to the post disco pre garage scene, and I, I, it, it's hard to kind of. Uh, imagine what what would have what would have happened to that scene if if he wasn't there doing kind of his his avant-garde experiments and uh you know it's it, he's he's one of these guys his ex, ex uh he was a bit eccentric and he ended up uh being a bit of a loner and he went off and ended up just kind of disappearing and it's very fortunate now that his partner after he's died has been very good about posthumously uh, uh, taking all of the secret recordings that he made over the years and is slowly releasing them. Uh, so, you know, check out Arthur Russell. He's a big influence on a lot of people, even gets uh, sampled by Kanye West. So big ups to Arthur Russell. I love that guy. Yeah. And, and I think he's also a reason that Garage of all the EDM styles, it puts the biggest premium on quote, conventional ideas of musicality. So it's the most song focused, the most lyric focused, uh, keeps singers front and center. And the word deep, Reynolds zeroes in on this, that, you know, there were tracks like Hard Drive's Deep Dish. There were um, 
bands with the name Deep in the title, and quote, Deep captures the most progressive aspect of Garage, its immersive dub-influenced production, and also its traditionalism, its fetish for songs and classy diva vocals, its allegiance to the R&B and soul tradition, and the aura of adult-oriented maturity. And um, But at the same time, as as Garage was being formalized and you know, Levin was doing it at the Paradise Garage, but then Tony Humphreys is doing it over in New Jersey. And Humphreys is probably the guy who codified Garage as a style. Levin was Levin was kind of bigger than Garage to me. He was so eclectic and and he's kind of the first superstar DJ. But Tony Humphreys is the guy who took the ethos of the Paradise Garage and codified it into a style that could become a genre. But at the same time, there's other things going on in New York. And there's a guy named Todd Terry. This is our next sample. This is Royal House, um, which is an alias for Todd Terry doing Can You Party from 1988. Tell us why you picked this one. Uh, just kind of to show how many different subgenres of house were, were kind of coming together. I mean, Simon Reynolds does a really good job of illustrating how the blanket terms of house and techno don't really do justice to everything that's going on. And he litters the chapter with all the different names of things that are going on, like disco house, disco funk, electro funk, electro tech, Latin house, garage, gospel house, deep house, and now this, hard house. And this is Royal House. Can you party? was Todd Terry's Royal House to Uncanny Party. And, and Reynolds describes uh, Terry as the bridge between the uh, electro and the later bleep and bass style that's going to be um, a factor in England. And also, Terry's style was called Hip House. And it's a conscious effort to mix what he's hearing in the clubs with hip hop. And he's kind of the successor to Mantronics and other electro era hip hop uh, groups um, and becomes a big influence on this wave of sample heavy house that's going to come out of the UK um, shortly thereafter. And also people in Chicago, DJ Fast Eddie and Tyree are also innovating hip house sounds. Um, Tyree has a song called Hardcore Hip House. And so, um, you know, there's there's a lot of forces contending here at, at this time. And and it's a very a lot, a lot of fragmentation and because we're back at the root of all this music you you have each new track that comes out has a new element that is then taken by a whole bunch of other producers and spun off into its its own genre. The same thing happens to this day. If if there's a a bass artist or or a house artist that has a new production technique that that everybody really gets into, you can literally uh, you know two or three months later find fifty or sixty more tracks with that exact same thing, and it and you often gets co 
codified into something with a new name. Uh, hip house, just uh, adding that element of, uh, of of a rap to it or whatever else like that. And then uh, the hard house having more of that percussive or the Latin house uh, taking on all of the uh, the Latin elements to it. Uh, because we're right back at the beginning, you could you could pick half these tracks out and then see how an entire industry of imitators came along and formed, uh, you know, either either a branch that blossomed or that kind of died away. Yeah. And and reading this chapter and going back and listening to the music, it was full of stuff that was new to me. I'm definitely a noob at this in general, but, you know, even on my third or fourth read, the the new Groove label has some really fun stuff. The New York Housing Authority, their projects series, and then their apartment series, Lake Erie's Sex for Days. Joey Beltram, who did Energy Flash, was was a new a new Groove records producer. Um, so a ton of stuff going on. And I think then one of the most useful things Reynolds does is is wrap it up and point out that there were three cities. You know, you had Detroit, you had Chicago, you had New York. But it's a lot more complicated than just Detroit, techno, Chicago house, New York garage. What you actually had was four fully formed genres of electronic dance music that Black America had created and perfected by 1989. You had Detroit techno. You had the deep house garage sound of Chicago and New York. You had the acid house house or jack tracks sound and then you had the hip house sound which is the breakbeat and sample based kind of thing and you know when we come back next week we're going to talk about what happened when people on the other side of the atlantic picked up on these records and blew it up way bigger than it got in america it's it's about to take over england in the late 80s in a big big way yeah, one of the things I really like about Energy Flash is it starts by lacing up Europe and North America like you would a sneaker, and it shows you how the music bounced back and forth and morphed like some musical version of that old kindergarten telephone game into into what it what it eventually becomes. And you know, you, you saw how it bounced back and forth from Kraftwerk over into Detroit and then back over into the UK, where where, where imitators were trying things out. So next, we're we're gonna go back over to England and see uh, what's brewing. Absolutely. And he's, you know, he's, his quote is transplanted across the Atlantic. Each of these sounds would mutate beyond all recognition and through a kind of creative misrecognition on the part of the Brits and the Europeans. And we'll hear people uh, like Derek May and Eddie Folks vociferously complaining about what's done to their music as they fly over there to get the big paydays <laughs> playing the music to these crowds of people who are desecrating their creation. So, Ryan, as always, it's been a hoot talking about Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, and we'll be back next week to take it across the Atlantic. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to talk about how Acid House triggered a musical and cultural revolution in Great Britain over the course of two summers of love. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.